What Uber wants is for each person to be fused into a bank that they can then deal with. Alright? They don't want to deal with the people, they want to deal with banks. So if you're interested in like local economic development, digital money doesn't necessarily help you, right? So you get surveillance, you get a whole sort of change in who's actually getting the spend, as it were. So digital, in general, always helps bigger players rather than smaller players. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president, it is about making a political revolution. MMT. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! Now, let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right, and this is Steve with Macro and Cheese. I've got Brett Scott joining me. Now, some of you all have heard Brett on the show before. We've interviewed him at Real Progressives. Brett is a really sharp guy on the international space, especially as it pertains to fintech and alternative currencies. Brett is a journalist, campaigner, former derivatives broker, and the author of The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, Hacking the Future of Money, in which he covers the inner workings of financial institutions, including the cultural dimensions of the financial system. He works on finance reform, alternative finance, and economic activism with a wide variety of NGOs, artists, students, and startups and writes for publications such as The Guardian, New Scientist, Wired Magazine, and CNN. So without further ado, let me bring on my guest, Brett Scott. Welcome, sir. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Steve. It's great to be back. How are you doing over there? <laughs> I'm doing okay. It's a yeah. little bit of crazy times. I imagine it's probably uh-huh. pretty crazy in the UK as well. For sure. It's pretty crazy everywhere. Eh? Well, I'm actually from South Africa. I'm based in the UK, but Pretty crazy in South Africa, pretty crazy in the UK. Yeah, you just recently won citizenship there in the UK too, as well, did you not? Oh uh, yeah, for sure. I did, yeah, which makes traveling quite a lot easier. Not that traveling helps very much right now, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you know when it kicks back in, you got your papers, right? Oh, exactly. <laughs> so last time we talked, we touched on Bitcoin and we touched on some blockchain type stuff, some basics of fintech. And it was really powerful. But with the situation we're in now with this COVID-19, particularly in a location where I work right now, just as a microcosm of the larger issue, we saw 500 union-based toll collectors get laid off, lose their job as a push to cashless tolling kicked in. And also, quite frankly, the effects or the perceived ill effects of the pandemic. And what happens if cash is transferring hands through a turnpike where individuals could pass the disease, so to speak, through handling money, physical money? And this brings me to a point where we had talked about the war on cash previously and how pernicious it is and the underlying political scene. And it seems like this 
pandemic could possibly be a real stealth moment here for this war on cash to really take hold. What do you see happening right now? No, you're totally right. I mean, it's undeniable that the cash system, which is the physical incarnation of state money, the physical government money, is taking a huge hit, at least in perceptions, you know? And as you mentioned, there's been a whole previous, prior to COVID, a whole sort of what I tend to refer to and what you refer to there as a war on cash, which is this concept of the war on cash basically is designed to counter the mainstream narrative, which if you ever go into like normal mainstream media or normal conferences, or you hear people speaking about the decline of cash, they normally speak about it as if it's a bottom-up process that just organically happens because people are just choosing to use digital systems. And they always never talk about the huge institutions and powerful parties that have a very strong interest in seeing the decline of the cash system, in particular, the banks, the payments companies, and also various state actors who actually want to destroy the cash system sometimes, sometimes overtly, you know. So the war on cash refers to the sort of the top down push from powerful actors to degrade the cash system and make it harder and harder to use. That's what we refer to as the war on cash. But of course, now COVID has come along and has dealt a further blow to this. And some of my recent work has been looking at the dynamics of that and how to counter this process. And one of the biggest, maybe thing, first things to note about this is that the actual scientific evidence of cash being a significant transmitter of COVID is very weak. The German central bank, the Bundesbank, came out saying cash poses no particular risk of infection to the public. One of the big infectious disease institutes in Germany also said exactly the same thing. They said virus transmission through banknotes is not significant. Bank for International Settlements, which is the big bank that works for central banks, they said exactly the same thing. Actually, they said more. They said that credit card terminals and pin pads, you know, the things you push to type all those terminals are more dangerous than cash. All right. So there's a bunch of scientific evidence that suggests that there's a very low transmission via cash, but nevertheless, the public perception has been somehow that, well, I mean, the whole physical world is under suspicion right now, right? So sure, yes. Physical versions of money are also under suspicion. And in places like the UK, I don't know what it's like in the US, but in the UK, for example, when lockdown first happened, they only let some of the big supermarkets stay open. And all those supermarkets were broadcasting anti-cash messages over their loudspeakers as people walked through those stores. So the entire population of the UK was being pushed through these stores, being told that cash was dirty. So, of course, the banks and payments companies who run the digital system are absolutely loving it. They're totally loving it. <laughs> so let me ask you then, obviously, the fear is real. I mean, we've got people wearing masks everywhere we're going now. Maybe that's really good sanitary practice, but it's definitely outside of the Asian world, a new thing for the Yankees over here in the U.S. The idea of submitting to a central authority telling us to do these things is countercultural to the U.S. freedom of spirit, so to speak. And you look at cash and you think this is the one thing that everybody, their vision of what money is, is a piece of paper. So for them to not have cash would be just crazy just culturally speaking. Absolutely, yeah. This is a much larger issue, it seems, than just a technocratic discussion 
there's a whole social component to this that I think that plays into a lot of the battle that we're about to face. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even when you look, if you say, if you page through the Financial Times or any other big financial newspaper, and you ever look at what visual imagery and what pictures they use to show money, they always show cash, right? Because it's what people think about mentally when they're thinking about money. And of course, a paper like the Financial Times, most of the transactions they're talking about are these huge corporate transactions, right? Which all take place via the banking system and digital money, right? So the corporate world works on massive bank transfers. They don't use cash, all right? Right. The people who use cash are often the most precarious people in society, the, the sort of the, the little people, as it were. But yes. nevertheless, even when we're talking about massive corporate transactions, the visual image that we use, we still use the cash imagery, right? So there's a whole sort of psychological element to how people think about money. People have no idea how to conceive of what digital money looks like. Well, I can tell you what it looks like. It looks like huge corporate data centers, right? That's what it looks like, <laughs> right? But you don't ever get to see those. Uh, so you most people don't know what they look like. Okay, so there's no visual imagery for digital money. And by digital money, I mean just the ordinary money in your bank account. You know, that's all digital. Yes. And so there's that. But there's also all these like cultural elements. And I also want to say class elements. Yes. Sometimes in the US, there's a slightly different debate around or class has slightly different meanings. In the UK, where I am here, class is like this very strong, ancient thing. You know, there's like the working class, the middle class and the upper class, you know, and there's very strong cultural associations. And in the UK, for example, cash is very heavily associated with the working class. People who basically often don't trust the banking sector. The banking sector has historically ignored, right? So there's this whole sort of element around the fact that cash has often been the sort of, uh, you want to say, like a kind of public utility accessible to anybody and has often been a friend, as it were. It's a very non-judgmental form of money. It kind of goes wherever. So this new sort of world, this dystopian, potentially brave new world, without those physical forms of money, you basically get sucked into this panopticon-like bank system. Mm. That makes quite a lot of people uneasy from all sorts of different parts of the political spectrum. Absolutely. Rowan Gray was working with Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, and they came up with this concept of the boost act. And it was founded on minting the coin, depositing a coin into the Fed, but giving people prepaid debit cards, basically, that were... Yeah just money cards that could be recharged without any issue. And the concern was, you know, well, now we can track where all these ne'er-do-goods spend their money. And so, okay, we got to anonymize this medium here. And ultimately, most people in the United States have access to banks, but the class structure here is such that there is a tremendously large underbanked community, not just underbanked, completely unbanked community of people that are poor, homeless, ex-cons that have been released without any hope or prayer of being part of the quote-unquote American dream. And now you see this push for using digital bank cards, digital notes, digital means of transfer, etc. How do you think something like that would play out culturally? Yeah, yeah. It seems like such a challenge to get people to think that way. Sure. Is that a complete departure from protecting them? Or is that a possible way of getting them into the system without giving up who they are? 
Well, there's lots of issues there. I mean, maybe it's a very brief comment on that very first thing you started off with the debit cards or the prepaid cards. Anonymous prepaid cards would hypothetically be one of the ways you could do a private form of digital money, right? Sorry if this sounds a bit technical, but whoever holds the card has the ability to command units of money in a bank account. But sure. the banks don't know who's holding the card. All right. So they can see these orders being made for like movements of money, but they don't know who's doing it. So actually, those prepaid cards are a way for you to preserve privacy. But it's still, again, playing into the overarching idea that the banking sector, the private banking sector, should take over complete control of the movement of money. Right, because right now, what the cash system is, is essentially a way to move money around without the banks being involved. Right? Actually, you know, it might come out of the ATM, right? it comes out of the reserves in the banking system. But once it's out of the system, it can move around autonomously. The banks are no longer involved, which is one of the reasons why the banks hate the cash system, amongst other reasons. But oh. so, yeah, the, the prepaid idea is like definitely something that Rowan and others have been working on. It's, there's definitely potential and stuff. And certainly better than some other ideas. Well, maybe one of the key things to flag up in this debate is that the mainstream way of speaking about the problems is that they say, oh, there's going to be a whole bunch of people who are quote unquote left behind if we go mm. to a digital system. Okay. So, for example, here in the UK, when a sort of well meaning person is concerned about the digital payment system and the bank system, they say, well, the reason why I'm concerned is that it will leave behind a bunch of people who don't have access, okay? To some extent, it's a legitimate concern. Of course, if you find yourself excluded from a system that's increasingly taking you over, that is a big problem. But the problem with that story is that it assumes that the only reason people are not using digital money is that they lack access. But if only they could get access, they would. They would use it. But there's many people who actually do not want to use the banks. That's part of the point, right? Like they do not actually trust the banks. They do not culturally feel like banks represent them. They often feel like banks are the preserve of elite, you know, wealthy people. And actually they like cash. They want to use cash. All right. Now this is like a slightly different thing to saying oh, I would use digital if only I could, but I can't. Therefore, I'm going to keep on using cash, you know? And the way that the media reports on this, they always put this idea that like, oh, well, everyone obviously wants to go digital, but some of them are just left behind and are unable to do it. And to use a sort of like transport-like kind of analogy, it's a little bit like you can imagine somebody hitchhiking along the road and some fancy car goes zooming by. And then some reporter you know, they're like, oh, the person wanted to get this lift, but they're left behind and they're not going to get to this destination everyone else is going to. All right. But actually what's happening with many parts of the society is they want to go in a different direction. You know, there are authentically are people, especially in the lower socioeconomic classes that actually like the cash system. <laughs> we actually find it's very flexible, resilient, doesn't rely on having to have some fancy like mobile phone. It's just like it just works, you know. Right. So this whole idea that like, well, if only we can just make the digital systems a bit more inclusive, then everything's going to be fine, is very problematic because in the end, what's the overarching process that's happening is that the money system is essentially being privatized. You're having all these commercial banks. Often in the UK, the state, the public sector is helping the commercial banks to onboard people, right? Under this idea that like, oh, well, it's inevitable that we're going to have to all use this digital system. So we better like 
you know, essentially help Barclays and HSBC, which is, you know, the equivalent of Wells Fargo and these type of players. We better help them get customers, you know, so, which is like, you know, a very classic example of the state working on behalf of powerful capitalists. Neoliberal and corporatism all wrapped in one. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, for sure, I mean, like, if we're like defeatist and say, well, look, we accept the power of these network effects and these huge players that are taking over. And if you're a small business owner and you're being screwed because you can't get access to the system, then sure, your immediate impulse is, oh, I wish I had access. But politically, that's very problematic. Yeah, absolutely. We talked a little bit offline before we got started today about the uberization of the financial system. And what I'm seeing is because in the United States, on a more political level, you see wages stagnant. You see people being forced into gig economies. You see people taking on second and third jobs within these one-off Uberized type roles. And you'd made the point to me offline that there's an automation of finance that is the desire of these Uber groups to have a seamless transition within this automated banking industry or financial industry. Can you set the stage for that? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean. If you go to, say, Kenya, which I was in Kenya two years ago or so, there's a lot of, let's say, Uber. Uber's arrived in Kenya, okay? But a lot of Kenyan drivers, the type of person who's going to say, I think Uber's the way for me to go, a lot of them actually use cash, okay? And actually, so Uber in Kenya will allow drivers to be paid in cash, all right? But notice what happens when that occurs. Basically, Uber loses control, all right? They're relying on some external process happening that the passenger is going to hand over cash to the driver, then the driver is going to like report it, and then the driver is going to then pay them a cut somehow. Uber hates this. They hate this. This is like fragmentation in an automated system. It's not automated, right? It's analog. There's an offline form of money being used between two independent human beings that they can't control, all right? This is like the nightmare for a large automated company. And when they speak about it, they, of course, speak about it as some kind of like dark age technology. They're like, oh, you've got these people using these offline type of money out there in the dirty world. What Uber wants is for each person to be fused into a bank that they can then deal with. All right. They don't want to deal with the people. They want to deal with banks. <laughs> okay. So the, the whole point of like these massive big tech meets big finance is that they want to seamlessly integrate with each other to create all these kind of interlocking automated systems, which when you're operating at huge scale, which is what they want to do, that becomes a lot cheaper for them. All right. So Uber does not want to be having to deal with cash transactions. It wants just like thousands of MasterCard or Visa initiated data center operations. <laughs> okay. That's what they want. <laughs> all right. So basically big tech hates cash. And actually in the US, for example, when there was pro-cash legislation being passed in cities like Philadelphia, Amazon was one of the companies that threatened the lawmakers there saying they're going to pull out if there was pro-cash legislation put there. Because essentially cash stands in the way of automation. All right. And Amazon specializes in super large scale automation. So of course they hate cash. So this is one of the sort of structural elements people often don't think about with the war on cash is like, okay, fine. We know that the banks and the payments companies like Visa and MasterCard have an obvious commercial interest in trying to push people towards using their digital payment systems. 
But it's not only the banks. It's also all these big platform companies that want to see that. I would also argue that big companies more generally. So, for example, in the UK here, I mentioned the fact that all these big supermarkets were telling people, oh, please use the card systems rather than the cash systems. And they were claiming that the reason why they want people to do that is because they're trying to protect them for their health because of COVID. But when you go back and look through what is the actual interest of these massive you know, retail chains, actually, they also want to automate everything. All right. So actually, they would also prefer to deal directly with the banks than to have to deal with cash as well. So often this COVID stuff is now being used to try and accelerate stuff that these guys wanted to do anyway. And we're trying to push people towards anyway. Wow. So this is not something I expected to ask you, but in looking at this, it's clear that the Elon Musks of the world are fans of the universal basic income. And the idea of giving people just digital cash to go ahead and spend on these things. And what I'm understanding from a combination of understanding the push with Facebook for Libra and others is here's a great way, once again, for them to grab all kinds of personal PII type information that they can sell and use for marketing purposes and drive up the cost of selling ads on their space and drive up cost of being able to do business on their medium. And it's a great way of tracking literally everything. And you look at the way that people have been X'd out of society by making criminal activity follow you forever. Even after you paid your debt to society, you leave prison and you've got this permanent invisible cage you're in, add in the tracing of your financial activity. And I see this being like part of that Silicon Valley, this technocratic approach to things is here, let's give you a UBI. We'll watch what you spend that money on. Come spend it with us. And then we'll sell that data. And then we know what's going on with you. Am I paranoid? <laughs> or is that a legitimate framework by which to put some skepticism toward this? Uh, it's a very legitimate framework. Yeah. The actual day-to-day -day technicalities might be more complex. All right. Different countries have got different data privacy laws and there's different situations in which data can be shared and so on. But like, the overarching intuition that if you move people towards a digital payment system, that there's going to be a huge data bonanza. I mean, that's totally true. And the type of data that's going to be made available through the proliferation of digital payments is extremely sensitive. It's a very, very powerful data. So for example, the big tech companies, their big source of revenue is advertising historically, at least, you know, Google and Facebook. That's mm -hmm. their big thing, right? Well, how do you prove to advertisers that they're getting what's worthwhile buying an ad? Well, you can show them that this person saw an ad and look, I can show you that they made a payment for something later that is correlated to them looking at this ad. Right, this is a huge thing. If you can show these types of conversions, because obviously you know this phrase, put your money where your mouth is. Like a person might have a bunch of aspirations and they might be like browsing through Google saying, you know, holiday to the Bahamas or whatever, like <laughs> thinking about like daydreaming about stuff, right? But what do they actually act upon, right? Ah. That's where the payments data shows you. The payments data shows you what you actually end up doing rather than what you might just be, you know, showing your mate or something, right? Ooh. And, you know, of course, the key question is like who ends up with this data because there's a whole bunch of, in modern digital payment systems, there's a whole bunch of different players who can insert themselves into the picture. If you look at it from the sort of the core, I mean, you've got the central bank in the middle, right? But often the sort of retail transactions don't happen at the central bank level. They're happening between the banks, between bank accounts. 
and it's only you know the net clearing and stuff that goes to the central bank so the central banks don't see you know the sort of nitty-gritty data necessarily right but the banks do okay but also the big payments companies that facilitate movements between those bank accounts like visa and mastercard they can see stuff but of course if you can then plug new players into the banks like paypal and what essentially libra was trying to do is sort of plug in the banking sector well now you've got a new layer between the person and the payment system so now you've got new ways of looking at who's doing what and of course there's all these data brokers as well who will take data from one party and sell it to another party and so there's a whole bunch of these systems where they can get access to this kind of stuff so it's yeah it's a massive area and of course historically digital payments were for like big things you know like you know, i bought a fridge or something like that which is you know useful information but like as it gets to smaller and smaller transactions you get more and more fine-grained ideas about how a person acts and what's going on with them so yes it's a massive data issue the profiling that comes with that i mean it's amazing just to put it in perspective just the other day we were joking around about a different email marketing platform that we were looking at integrating with a webinar platform we're moving to and when we reviewed that all of a sudden every facebook post we were looking at the ads were suddenly for email marketing and it was all of us. We laughed. We were like, oh my God, they literally saw everything we were just doing and yeah, immediately exactly. customized all the ads we're looking at instantly. Yeah. Well, imagine, for example, you know, like you got, and I'm not an expert. I've got friends who specialize in looking at the dark arts of like data brokers and these big ad aggregation companies and stuff. But, you know, like you see somebody looking at something, maybe you don't know if they've actually ended up buying the thing or not. You know, but imagine you can now see that they've actually gone and bought the thing. And now you're going to stop those ads because they've already bought the thing and they've already acted upon the impulse, right? So there's a whole bunch of this kind of data stuff, a whole new world of like data exploitation. But just quickly, like on the sort of UBI and these ideas, like just to connect those two things is that, of course, when people promote new social initiatives that involve giving money out to people, whether that's in the form of a UBI or whether that's you know refugees who are going to be given some kind of card to make payments somewhere, anything that involves giving digital money out can simultaneously become a surveillance technique as well. So in the international aid community, this is a big thing, right? Historically, they would do cash transfers. They literally give people out cash when they're going into disaster areas. They'd be like, here's you know a hundred dollars for you to go spend, and it'll help to boost the local economy. So this is what they refer to. And there's a big sort of thing in the aid industry about just give out cash transfers to people and it'll help to boost the local economy. But then increasingly, they've been moving to try and get people to give these digital transfers. Of course, if you give refugees and stuff digital systems, now you can actually track more what they're doing. But also it starts to like move away from the local economy because the thing about digital payments is that they are designed for like web commerce and sort of long distance transactions. So if you're interested in like local economic development, digital money doesn't necessarily help you, right? Yeah. So you get surveillance, you get a whole sort of change in who's actually getting the spend, as it were. So digital, in general, always helps bigger players rather than smaller players. Wow, yeah. I definitely did not think about that, but that is exactly right. You get the appearance of, hey, it's right here right now. But in reality, that payment could have been processed in Dubai. <laughs> anywhere exactly yeah well they all work on huge network effects so they have like large single players rather than many small local players that's the general point of anything digital they create these huge nodes in the middle <laughs> yeah 
They always imply greater inequality. Wow, I should have thought about that, but I didn't. Wow, oh my goodness, the implications. <laughs> oh, you know. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. So you recently taken what 18 months to write a book and I'm just very curious you being off the grid like that really focusing on that tell us a little bit about this book you wrote Sure well it's kind of been a bit delayed because of all the publishing disruptions basically the publishers all got a bit hit by covid and stuff so it'll probably only be out later next year but basically it's at a very broad level big tech meets big finance but zooming in a bit more, it looks at the war on cash. So essentially what we've been talking about before, about how people are increasingly being pushed into the private bank digital payment system and how that in turn facilitating this much bigger process or potentially is being as a result of these huge automation processes that these big companies are seeking, right? So there's really structural pressures in an economy to sort of move towards digital payments. And then as a sort of second part, I look at the cryptocurrency world. You know, the cryptocurrency world's had a lot of press and there's a lot of like hoo-ha about it. And one of the sort of the big claims made by cryptocurrency pundits was that, hey, there's this huge panopticon system being created in the normal money system. And we're going to provide this antithesis or this alternative, which is going to combat all the problems that you find in the normal monetary system. And in particular, it's going to combat the centralization or the sort of oligopoly nature. And it's also going to like combat, and this is where the very conservative part of crypto comes in, like this expandable and contractable money supply. So they want this sort of fixed money supply. So this is what the crypto world was all going for. And I sort of point out how there's all these sort of failures about this, a lot of weaknesses to that approach. And then the sort of the third part of the book is looking at almost hybrids between those approaches. So the types of like interesting things that are emerging at the intersection of the ordinary money system and these like more decentralized tech alternatives. This is a very broad level. <laughs> well, how does it work? I'm curious about this because obviously, you know, we just had Scott Ferguson and Ben Wilson on a few weeks back regarding their uni, which is sort of a digital currency. It's a currency that could be used by university systems leveraging the land that they have as kind of an ability to leverage assets and to be able to create a payment system for okay. tuition and food and housing and other such things. So in this case, they are still tied back to some degree to the U.S. monetary system. However, it is a secondary thing. It is a separate thing, and it would be used within possibly even the state of New York as a complementary currency. To the extent that I understood what they were talking about, 
Help me understand how a private currency operates within this future space, the two parallel universes where one is state currency and one is private currency. Help me understand that. I mean, look, there's probably a few different angles in on this. So de facto, in general, across most of the world's countries, there's this dual money system in the sense that there is both the state in the form of central banks and treasuries, and there's also the commercial banks. So there's public-private partnership that issues the money and sort of presides over the monetary system in very blunt terms. That's what all countries have. And like in the Eurozone here, like in France and stuff, it gets more complicated because you've got this meta state type thing. But this is the basic lay of the land. And then, of course, prior to cryptocurrency, there was a whole world of what's called alternative currencies, which were people who were trying to build things in the shadow of the state bank money system. So little local currencies, little time banks, little sort of community exchange systems which were actually detached from the existing monetary system, but operated at very small scale. And so that's what I, I tend to refer to, maybe like the, the pre-cryptocurrency alternative currency world, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Historically, though, those types of very small localist forms of money have always struggled because they're operating against the network effects of the large-scale state currency. Okay? I always look at money systems as network systems, right? They're huge networks. So and the larger the network, the more powerful it can become often. So these very small, and you try to build a local currency, it's very hard. You only have 150 people, and it's very difficult to get enough energy into a network like that. The crypto people came along. This is, I guess, 2008. The cryptocurrency world came along, and I guess it sort of took both the original alternative currency world and the normal fiat world by surprise, because it sort of came out with this totally different monetary design that seemed to be able to actually operate at scale, which is why it took so much to the public attention. So actually, the original alternative currency world suffered because people kind of forgot about them and kept fixating upon Bitcoin. So every time I go to a party, for example, and I say, hey, I'm involved in alternative currencies, the first thing somebody says to me is like, oh, Bitcoin, you mean Bitcoin, don't you? It's like, no, actually, do you realize like for hundreds of years prior to Bitcoin, there were people attempting to do all <laughs> sorts of other things that often had far more advanced monetary design than Bitcoin. Bitcoin has got very advanced technological elements, but it's very crude from a monetary perspective. It's very questionable whether it's money at all. So that's what they say that there was this kind of crypto invasions, as it were. But in reality, what's actually happened, so I'm not sure if I'm answering your question entirely here, but like what's happened is like, if you're to imagine the, the Bitcoin invaders as being like, you know, barbarians charging towards the gates of Rome, <laughs> at least this is what in their heads they like to think this, What's actually happened is that they sort of just settled on the outskirts, in the fields outside, and actually do large amounts of business with Rome. <laughs> <laughs> actually, you're mostly interested in getting the Roman currency. All right. That's what most crypto trading is, is that you try and buy and sell it for US dollars. So the whole idea of this is revolution occurring is it's like slightly bullshit. Like, and, <laughs> but in the end, it did create a lot of excitement and interest around the idea of an alternative, but actually failed to authentically do that. And one of the reasons why is that the monetary design of Bitcoin is so crude. I mean, all that the system does is enables people to issue tokens and move them around, right? But you have to ask yourself, like, what are the tokens? The tokens in the Bitcoin system are literally just blank objects. They have no characteristics. It's literally like 
taking a blank piece of paper and issuing it out and then hoping that it becomes a monetary system. And you know, there might be a very advanced technological way that they're issued out and moved around, but at a monetary level, it's super crude, which is why it hasn't succeeded. So the interesting thing right now going forward in the alternative currency space is, okay, can we take some of the strong elements of the crypto movement, some of the technological advancements, but then borrow from the other alternative currency movements like mutual credit systems and stuff like that, which I can explain, borrow from them the monetary designs and actually come up with these really interesting types of alternative currencies that would potentially authentically be quite empowering to people. But yeah, in the end, the normal monetary system is also a totally legitimate place to try and create social change. So for example, I know with you guys, you're very involved in the MMT, you know, MMT type thinking and policy proposals or descriptions are all related to the normal monetary system and how you can use the normal monetary system for positive social change. So you don't have to be doing alternative currencies. Right. Wait, let's talk about that. I'm going to butcher this, but you said mutual, what was it? Mutual credit. Okay. So within mutual credit, talk to me about this. This is my first pass through on this concept. Okay. Well, I have the impression that the listeners to the show have probably been involved or heard about the sort of MMT movement. Absolutely. Charterlist money theory, right? So, but if you zoom out, chartalism and MMT are part of a broad paradigm of money theory. I just call it credit theories of money. Okay. It's the idea that you can pay people by making promises, essentially, right? That money is an accounting system, but it's also issued out in the form of essentially promises, right? Or IOUs. And this is a very crude, you know, simplification, but in a lot of old school commodity thinking about money, so, so credit theories of money are often contrasted to commodity theories of money. In commodity style thinking about money, it's assumed that the money has to be found somewhere and once you find it, you can then dangle it in front of somebody to induce them to give you something, right? This is how normal <laughs> economists speak about money. It's like you're holding this value in your hand, and then you'll dangle it in front of somebody, and then they will give you value in return, all right? Whereas, of course, in credit theories of money, the idea is that, well, I don't have to have anything. I can just issue promises to get somebody to give me something, okay? And if they trust this promise, then that becomes a unit of money. Well, at least it's a proto form of money. And when you get into stuff like chartalism, the idea is that you have extremely powerful players are very good at issuing those promises, all right? So people like states have a very high chance of having their promises accepted. Sure. But going to mutual credit systems now, it operates under the same intuition that you can issue promises to pay for things, but it tries to do it in a different structure. It says, well, we don't need a large state to be doing this. We can do it as a community, all right? We can set up a shared ledger between ourselves you know i mean you could just set up an excel spreadsheet for example actually let me give you a very simple example imagine it's in a shared house there's a student house all right and people are doing different chores they're doing different things in the house and rather than keeping an informal tally in your head of who's done what you just set up an excel spreadsheet and as somebody does something the house they get given a positive credit and everyone else goes a bit negative to reflect the fact that they've received something from somebody and that this person at some point has the right to claim stuff back from the house okay that would be a very simple mutual credit system but these systems are basically set up such that people can 
go in, offer their labor to other people, and in exchange get given a positive credit while the other people get negative credits. And then the person can take their positive credit back into the system to redeem it for goods and services at a later date. So these are mutual credit systems, and they're one of the most ancient forms of monetary system. Arguably, like the commercial banks and stuff operate a very large-scale mutual credit system between themselves. Yeah, I hope that made sense there. Like, Essentially, the systems for issuing promises and moving them around between people. If I hear what you're saying, it also kind of pulling me to Marx momentarily is people have the value of their labor translating into credit within the system. And I have a feeling there's some people out there, especially in leftist anarchist circles, that would really like this quite a bit. Sure, yeah. Mutual credit systems tend to be associated with mutual aid, and mutual aid sort of comes in under the anarchist tradition. Sure, absolutely. Is this a speculative thing, or is this happening in any incubators, or is this happening in real life anywhere? Oh, well, I mean, it's happened for hundreds of years. I mean, it's one of the most... No, I mean today. In our current system, I don't see too much. Everybody's kind of been plantation. They're all stuck in cities now and stuff. I'm interested. Are there successful uses? Sure. One of the most well-known ones in the European context is a system called Sardex, S-A-R-D-E-X, which is actually run by a friend of mine, Giuseppe Letera. He's based in Sardinia, and it's a big mutual credit system that runs between small businesses in Sardinia. So if you think about this idea that you can pay people with promises, actually for small businesses, this is very useful because think about a small business that's got cash flow problems where you know you have to have a certain amount of money before you can get an inventory that you can then sell to others, right? So traditionally what small businesses would do is that they go to a bank and they say, please can I borrow a bit of money so that I can buy my inventory so that I can then go and sell and then I'll repay you, okay? And but when there's financial crisis, these small businesses are often the ones that get hit first by banks retracting credit, saying, you know, no, we're actually not going to finance you. That's why, you know, small businesses are very susceptible to being hit by these big crises. But systems like Sardex essentially enable these businesses to issue IOUs, issue promises to other people in the network to say, hey, can I get stuff from you? And here's a promise. And then those promises circulate as a unit of money. All right. So interestingly, and this is where you have to get really like familiar with credit theories of money, which I think you are, but like a lot of people are not used to thinking like this about money. But in the first instance, money is actually created as credit, all right? It's actually created through issuing these promises. So actually, you can have a small business lending system and a monetary system combined into one. Actually, this is like one of the big sort of reasons why these mutual credit systems start up, to give small-scale credit to small-scale businesses. But yeah, that's a good example. Right now, there's a whole bunch of interesting new ones being designed based on a slightly different concept called rippling credit, which I can explain if you want me to. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm loving this. So it's quite hard to sort of like explain these systems sometimes. I'm also aware sometimes when I'm describing them that the people listening, unless you've been sort of trained to think in credit terms, they can sound quite strange. But let me try. So the, the rippling credit idea is, so let's say I know you and you know me, and we actually might be prepared to give each other credit. So, you know, you say to me, hey, can I borrow something from you? Or can I take something from you? And I'll give you something back later. And I say, cool, you can do that. 
So that's like a credit line, all right? And you might be prepared to do the same thing for me, okay? So we have a bilateral credit line between ourselves. You might call it a trust line, okay? It's between oh. party A and party B. That's one trust line. But imagine now you know five other people who you also have a similar relationship with, and you have trust lines with all of them. Now, through you, I can use my trust line to access somebody else, all right, who you know. So it can like ripple like a domino through people, these lines of credit. So I make a promise to you, you make a promise to another friend on behalf of me, all right? So these new systems now, which are around this like rippling credit idea or the sort of domino credit idea, which means networks of people can start to issue credit between themselves and create money, as it were. The reason why this is different to the normal monetary system is in the normal monetary system, there are powerful issuers of credit money, like the state and banks. But we as ordinary people simply use the credits that they issue. We ourselves do not ever issue the credits. We are mere users of the money. We are not issuers of the money. So actually, you know, obviously in the MMT world, this is a big point, right? A money issuer does not think like a money user. A money user keeps on imagining that a money issuer is like a household or something, right? Right. When of course it's not, right? A money issuer is on the other side. Whereas if you get involved in mutual credit systems, you can actually become a money issuer. So you start to understand this idea that like the promises I issue out, I can use to pay people, which is how a state thinks. You know? Yeah. <laughs> no, this is really interesting because I'm envisioning a society where people have shared beliefs, shared interests, and are just fed up with being starved by the currency issuing government that is not serving their needs, but is serving the needs of a different class of individual. And these folks say, you know what? I'm going to offer my services based on this credit system. And you can offer yours back to me in this credit system and we can work mutually together to avoid being taken advantage of by this other system that isn't there really to serve us. Yeah, absolutely. That certainly makes an incredible amount of sense. And I can see how it ties to mutual aid as well. Often, actually, there's an interesting interaction, though, between these mutual credits or these rippling credit systems and a normal monetary system. So... Let's say the US dollar system, central in the Federal Reserve and the banks and stuff, has an existing pricing system within it. Okay, so all those units, you know, when you go down to get a coffee, you've got a certain idea in your head about how many units of money is a legitimate amount to part with for a coffee. Okay, and you kind of intuitively have worked it out over time. The network has worked it out, right? And there's various processes for pricing. But now, if you're starting an alternative system on the side, you can actually borrow the pricing from the mainstream system. So actually, you can start a mutual credit system. When you're deciding on prices, you just use the US dollar system. You say, well, in the US dollar system, this would cost $3. So we're going to have three units in our system will be how you get a coffee here. So actually, that's quite interesting. Or else you can invent an entirely new unit of account if you want. But that gets more complicated. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But then that kind of play in, I mean, if I was being cynical or not even cynical, if I was being gracious, actually, could Bitcoin not serve as a medium for this mutual aid, just as the token for that mutual aid? Could it not serve in the same fashion? No, you'd have to really be like hacky about it. 
it's like forcing a square peg into a round hole. You'd be trying to use it for something it's just not designed to do. Okay. Bitcoin comes from the completely opposite monetary paradigm. I mean, it's essentially an object that you issue out and it cannot be destroyed. The way I think about the Bitcoin system is like, I almost imagine it like, I have an active imagination sometimes. I almost imagine it like a sort of static sculpture in space that you can kind of like fly to and sort of look at. You've seen like the, like the alien films and stuff where there's just these huge like wreckages in space just sitting there, you know, or something like that. Bitcoin's like that. It's like this huge static system is not really connected into the real world. And fine, these units you can move around, but they're very unconnected. They're very like, uh, like I want to say like disassociated from the world. All right. And you can't destroy them. Once they're issued, they're kind of like there forever. <laughs> Which should tell you something. It should tell you that it's not a living system. All right. Like true, like living systems are like organic and breathe. You know, they sort of move, they expand and contract and stuff. Whereas Bitcoin just stays the same. It gets bigger. Very inelastic. Yeah. Yeah. So like there's something about it, which is fundamentally not very good at responding to organic human action. Whereas so these mutual credit systems, what would tend to happen is you, you know, you're issuing promises out, so it's expanding, but then the promises come back and they get destroyed. So it's always going from zero and then expanding and then contracting, expanding, contracting, breathing. So actually the systems... I'm sorry, I want to interrupt. There's no limit to promises. I can do as many promises as I want. No, no, no. So one of the key design principles when you're designing mutual credit systems is what the limit will be. Ah, okay. And this is how you can also limit inequality in the system, because if you have, for example, 100 people in a mutual credit system and you say, well, we're going to give you a credit limit of 10, okay, and let's say everybody uses their credit to give to one person, one other person. Let's say one person gets all the credits of everybody else. The system will then like lock in and stop that accumulation right there's only a total number of like a thousand units that that person can accumulate all right before the inequality is stopped i don't know this is quite abstract but like in our normal monetary system it's operating at such a huge scale the reason why like jeff bezos and these people can get 215 million dollars a day <laughs> is that there's like billions of other people or like hundreds of millions of other people using huge scale money systems that are presided over by huge scale institutions such that actually a single human being is able to obtain 215 million of them in a single day, right? You need like a mass scale money system to be able to do that. Whereas in these mutual credit systems, there's a sort of like natural locks or sort of limitations on inequality, depending on how high you set the credit limits. But this is also why they struggle to take off. Right. But they're a really fascinating like area of innovation, especially when you combine them with some of the decentralized technology systems, because there does become this potentiality of saying, hey, a huge network of people, let's say 10,000 people, might actually be able to start legitimately creating a sort of organic money system between themselves and sort of become like a central bank in and of themselves somehow, which is very interesting. Right? Whereas in Bitcoin, that's not the case. You have a sort of robotic system that issues the tokens and the people can just use them. Right. There's no process of the people themselves saying, I issue to you for some particular thing. Well, the reason why I said it the way I said it, and I hope for our listeners that have heard us talk about crypto and Bitcoin in the past, 
for those who maybe haven't heard that, I know that these are the sorts of things you dream of Bitcoin doing and you fancy it doing. And by setting the stage here to show the obvious shortcomings, if you will, or limitations of it, you can clearly see that it cannot do that which a sovereign currency can do. Or in this case, even these mutual systems seem like a great way of augmenting possibly inaction from the currency issuing authorities, if you will, in the current state system. I do have a question for you, and it comes back to the credit that you were just talking about in terms of setting those limits. There has been discussions about digital currencies, not necessarily the crypto style, Bitcoin style currencies, but they would actually have like a built-in timer. Like if they're not used within so much time, they die, basically. They time out, they vanish. Yeah. Is that something that could be tied to this or is this something that's completely unrelated or is this concept here just me trying to bring something unrelated into the conversation? (laughs) Like central bank digital currencies, you mean? Yeah. Well, I'm looking more at your mutual rippling credit. Absolutely. So that system is called Demirage. That's what people in the alternative currency world historically used to refer to this idea, essentially decaying money. And the idea that it will sort of disintegrate in your hand if you don't use it. Historically, that's thought of as a way to stimulate economic activity because the money becomes like a hot potato, right? It'll burn you if you don't get it out of your hands, you know, and you better throw it to somebody else so that they can, you know, this burning potato. I mean, I don't know if it's the best metaphor, but <laughs> you, you get the point. Yes. But demurrage is a very interesting idea. There's different ways of implementing it in an alternative currency system. If you're starting from a credit theory of money, which you assume that money is a promise issued out, what a demurrage system means is it either means that promises that you hold are going to be taken away from you and given to somebody else, okay, if you don't use them. So that's like a welfare version of demurrage to say, like, if you've got these units sitting in your account and you're not doing anything, the system will take them away and redistribute them to others. Okay, that's like a welfare version, a redistribution version of Demirage. There's another version which says, okay, if you've got these promises sitting in your account and you don't use them, the actual promise will just weaken. It'll just get less. Less will be promised to you. So the person who issued them out will be let off the hook. Um, The basic idea is like, you know, if you had to imagine it as a bilateral relationship between me and you, and let's say I did something for you, and you issued me a promise saying, I recognize that you did something to me and I owe you something. And then I never choose to redeem that back to you. What the demurrage system is basically saying is that at some point you'll just, will no longer have a debt. Okay. It'll just disintegrate unless I actually go back and demand something from you. So there are ways in these mutual credit systems to say, Hey, if you're just sitting on tokens, you're sitting on promises and you're not using them, actually you lose your right to use them. It's controversial, of course, because if you're trying to be a saver, if you're trying to save, this becomes a political issue. But it's definitely a way to stimulate activity in a mutual credit system. I love it. Thank you so much. And I appreciate you bearing with me because I spend so much time in the MMT land that expanding into some of these other things is a real joy to hear You know, some of the alternative views. And you are just such a wealth of knowledge. Let me ask you one final thing before we get out of here. You have been obviously writing this book. 
what are some of the things that you're going to be working on in the future? You're always involved in such really neat stuff. Yeah, well, right now I'm currently involved in helping to try and campaign around protecting cash in the UK. That's one project. I'm also helping to try and start up this new alliance of next wave mutual credit systems. So the kind of stuff we've just been talking about or rippling credit systems. So we're trying to start an alliance of different people who are interested. Let's say people who are fed up with the original cryptocurrency systems, but who want to forge a new positive direction using that technology. So there's a lot of fed up developers who are tired of the old rhetoric of Bitcoin and stuff who actually want to do something interesting, but are looking for a new direction. So that's a new sort of alliance we're bringing together with some of the old gurus of alternative currency. I've also started this new newsletter on Substack, which is around, I'm really, really fascinated by drawing pictures. My mother's an artist and she's a drawing teacher. And so I always grew up in this kind of artistic family. And I'm like, I love the idea of visually representing finance and money to actually make it like visible to people so we can start to be less abstract about it. So this new newsletter, that's what I'm going to start doing. I'm going to start like, slowly drawing out monetary systems and then getting artists and professional illustrators to start coming in and nuancing out my pictures. So I'm quite excited about that one. You can find that one if you're interested. It's brettscott.substack.com and that'll be launched soon. Well, I just subscribed just now, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, and that's going to be a work in progress. I think it's going to start out fairly rough, but then over time, you know, maybe some really interesting stuff could come out of it. I'm quite interested, actually, <laughs> to see, see what happens. No, thank you so much. So, Brett, I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with me today. And as you know, I mean, <laughs> look at our inboxes. We've been playing tag now for almost a year. So this was a real <laughs> joy for me to have you on. And I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's great. All right. Well, look, you stay safe in this COVID-19 world. I wish you the best of luck with your blog and the efforts that you're undertaking. And with that, I'm Steve Grumbine with Macro and Cheese, my guest, Brett Scott. We thank you all very much. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great one. We're out of here. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Mindy Donham. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash real progressives. I want the truth!